Before we get the episode started, I just wanted to apologize for the poor sound quality. It's not the worst sound quality you've ever heard from us, but it's definitely not the best. We lost a track completely, but luckily we had a backup recording that recorded everything together. So it won't sound as polished as usual, but it'll still be a pretty good discussion. Enjoy. Hello, and welcome to The Regrettable Century. I'm Chris. I'm Kevin. I'm Jason. And today we have with us a special guest. So Candy Luisa Herrera is a socialist union organizer, and she is joining us today to talk about woke capitalism. Which is, of course, it's our favorite. We love woke capitalism. We've been eating extra McDonald's because they amplify black voices lately. Yep. And that's how you know we won. So, I mean... Woke capitalism, uh, it's, it's a bugaboo of the, uh, of the far right and the uh, not so far right. And also for the left, the anti-woke left likes to decry woke capitalism and the woke left likes to decry woke capitalism. And the fact of the matter is that being woke is big in our culture right now. And there are a lot of questions surrounding its usefulness and it's misuse. And we're going to talk about that a little bit. Okay, so, you know, I think we should probably do what we usually do when we're doing something like this, and that is define our terms. What do we mean by woke capitalism? When I say woke capitalism, I'm specifically referring to the sorts of things that have been like specific. Let's, let's talk about uh, the George Floyd uprisings. And the media's response to that is, of course, to wholeheartedly, all of a sudden, seems like just adopt black lives matter and the writing it on the streets and uh, uh changing like the happy meals of the black lives matter meals stuff like that you know stuff is go- lots of stuff is like that is going on and that's what i mean by that did that really happen no oh okay <laughs> on their on their on their twitter page they they changed their their headline to say mcdonald's amplifying black voices which okay. i don't know so it's, i, I don't it's not quite I can't. the same as the black lives matter meal <laughs> but i think that that i mean the fact that that's a question that's like a that that is an honest question i think is a that that is a a really good sort of indication it's plausible right it's a plausible proposition it's why it needs to be talked about but also i guess um i think it's super difficult and complex because on the one hand i think that there are things which look like really cynical branding opportunities like that and there's the famous the most famous example that anybody has to cite is the kendall jenner pepsi commercial where she uh you know <laughs> cops and right and, and protesters are squaring off and then they get pepsi and everything's fine now and um but then i also think that there's you know, there's that. Then there's also like I think there's the, the genuine intentions of like liberal-minded capitalists who think this is how I'm going to do good in the world. It's got nothing to do with people's, you know, experiences at work. But later, when they're consuming my products, it'll uplift them. But then there's also like the the variant that it makes it the most complicated to me is that these are the responses to like legitimate demands made by people in the society. So I feel like uh, the reason the reason why I feel like this. The, the conversations that are had about like wokeness and branding and woke capitalism and recuperation are always so limited is because they're all usually only about one of those things. Right. Like, like either this is a co-optation of, of, a, of the mood or it's a victory or, or is it, or at least a sign of the times, right. Or it's like, 
a genuine expression of sentiment. And, and I think maybe all three of those things are true. Well, I don't, I don't know. That's giving them a lot of credit. <laughs> I mean, I don't, I don't know. I, I feel like, well, here's the question is whether or not they understand if they're intentionally trying to subvert the message or to dilute the message, because ultimately what all these rallies are about are about defunding the police, right? And mm-hmm. it's about police brutality and that you, you don't have McDonald's having a police, anti-police brutality happy meal or whatever, a brutality meal. <laughs> I don't know how you would spend that. I'm sorry. But that's really ultimately what these things are about. And it was exacerbated by the fact that, you know, we're all at home and with the pandemic and stuff like that. Um, and, and, you know, folks just don't have other, they don't have other places to go. Um, but I think, you know, I think it's a question about whether or not they're doing it intentionally. Maybe it doesn't matter because ultimately what they want to do at the end of the day is make more money anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, you know, how successful it has been in terms of affecting people. Like I've seen a lots of neighborhood protests and um, holding signs on street corners and stuff like that. But it's the signs don't say defund the police. You know, I've seen signs that say, like, let's look at our hearts mm-hmm. and um, love one another. And it's just like, no, that's not why we're out here. We're we're out here because police are brutally murdering, murdering unarmed black people. And so when you have like BLM Oreos and stuff like that, I think it does help to dilute the message and people do walk away with, okay, well, we just want to feel like all these neighborhood protests, I guess they're fine, but they don't do anything like unless they're, you know, connected to a mass movement that are, that are connected to demands, clear demands. I don't, it's hard to dump on them because it's better than nothing. Right. But sometimes they seem like feel good. (laughs) Well, this is, I mean, that's a legitimate, that's a, that's a real question. I'm not, I'm not like, I'm not trying to be glib, like, cause I have a hard time deciding whether or not I think that the, the years, like 20 years of my life that I spent standing on street corners, um, was totally wasted time and just basically acted as catharsis for me and didn't actually accomplish anything. I, I, I feel like that, uh, about all my anti-war protesting all throughout the Bush years and all of the, you know, the, the stuff that I did like that, where I walked, I walked around with a sign with like 14 other people. I don't necessarily know if I, if it was counterproductive or just not really useful because I feel like that, that kind of like the, the lifestyle of the activist where you just like, what are we getting mad about this week? Okay. Let's go get some like poster boards is really cathartic. It makes me feel like I'm doing something. Well, I think there's something to be said for normalizing protests, and particularly with children. So, like, I don't... Have you guys ever seen Blue is the Warmest Color? No. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yes. No, okay. what is that? So, it's a, about, a, like, a lesbian romance. But the... But it's like a coming-of-age lesbian romance thing. But in, in it, I, I watched it, and it's just like, they're protesting in high school, which was, like, not a normal experience to me. I went to a shit high school. Like, I was not awake. <laughs> and, um, you know, protest wasn't part of certainly my family, like anything that we did in my family. So anyway, um, I remember watching that movie and being like, wow, that's just so... And it's like two or three very casual scenes. Like, there's no dramatic lead-up to them going, and, you know, this was like a gay rights thing, like a queer rights thing. And so I was just thinking how cool that would have been to nor that, that normalizing protests would be like, it, it was a, it was a novel concept to me. Yeah. I don't know, but maybe that is normal in Portland. Who knows? I'm new here. <laughs> <laughs> well, like, I think 
so this is a this this became something of a of a debate uh, that we had. I guess. Well, I won't speak for anybody else, but I guess I feel like Kevin, Kevin, and I debated this a little bit um, recently when it comes to the the notion of like recuperation of sentiment and of of an image and of an aesthetic and whether or not that there is still a net positive to be gained in exactly this, the normalization of whatever it might be, dissent in an abstract sense or or a particular outlook, which, you know, it, it is actually the case that there are periods in, in American history where uh, everybody who's here is like actually fully human is is a is a leap forward in consciousness, you know? Um, and yet, like, you know, the fact that we have Oprah doesn't mean that it's like, yeah, being a black woman's easy now. Like, don't worry, it's settled. So it's like, there is, there's an argument to be had, I think, that there's a certain version of normalizing a sentiment, which actually covers over the, the, the anguish and the rage and the demands which gave rise to the sentiment in the first place. Because I think it allows us to have a, a sort of a false vision of what has been accomplished. Because we all agree in the abstract now that like, yeah, marriage equality, we're mostly on board for that now. And so like, life's good for everybody. Now we have a rainbow flag. It's good, right? Like project on the White House and we've settled the question. But in fact, that's really just the beginning of something. Beginning of a- asking a question rather than, than it finally answering it. Or at least that's, that's the way I see it. Yeah, well, I, I think, I think where you ended up with that uh, is, I think that's the correct place, but I, I think it, runs counter to where you started it with the the phrase of um a net good uh so we were talking about american what american culture has contributed to the world earlier and i one of the things that um is a unique american contribution at least in academic philosophy is american pragmatism that is uh, an outgrowth or a fun or maybe a subset of the Anglo tradition that is very, uh, very interested in setting everything in terms of calculations and trying to figure out what is the, you know, what is the result of this calculation? If we plug in these variables into this, uh, the correct formula, then we'll, we'll, end up with the uh correct answer to that uh that that problem everything uh, in in uh the anglican um uh philosophical tradition is uh, sometimes uh, do, sometimes it's sort of um insulted as being you know uh reduced to syllogisms to uh things where you know like if a then b if b then c a therefore c and like that is the entirety of the anglo uh, philosophical tradition, and I think American pragmatism is sort of a function of uh, uh, of that tradition. The concept of a net good, like morality being something that you can have a formula that produces uh, an end result that we can then look at and assess its positivity versus its negativity. Uh, I, I think that's exactly the problem. I, I, where, uh, Jason, where you ended that, what you just said was, it's the beginning of a conversation. It's the beginning of a dialectic, uh, you might say. And I think uh, a more, a, a dialectical ab- approach that would object to this, uh, way of rendering the world as being something that can ever be 
flattened into uh, a good or bad is is part of the problem that we're that we we have to be able to recognize um aspects so we have we have to be able to sort of like recognize that we exist in a moment uh and that moment has aspects that are positive and negative certainly and and maybe we could sort of uh, do the math equation that results into a net positive or a net negative but more importantly far more importantly than the question of does this sort of freeze frame uh give us the ability to you know or, or does this freeze freeze frame a moment in time give us a net positive or negative far more important is what are the potentialities that come out of this mm. what what gave rise to this moment and what do, you know what directions uh is it heading where 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 can this go where where can we as individual subjective actors plug into this this moment this freeze frame that we're looking at and what can we do with it? That's really what matters, I think, is that uh, dynamic approach of looking at things in motion and not as just flattened, free, frozen moments in time. Wasn't, wasn't there something about you can't do both? <laughs> that whole, uh, I, that was a physics joke. I'm sorry. So the, <laughs> <laughs> I was really bad at night class. <laughs> I never um, got to that class. <laughs> Are you talking about like uh, locating the electron or whatever? You can't tell what what's it? You can't tell how fast it's going and Position where and it is. And that this, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, it was super lame. I'm sorry, but like getting getting what you were talking about, like the, the like the the utilitarianist, like hedonic uh, calculus and that type of thing. I don't know. I feel like you get. I feel like it's a it it, it helps line to this argument about whether or not there's been progress, and I think I think it's very clear that there has been. Um, I think that's pretty, pretty evident if you look historically that there has been progress and you can say that there have been gains. Now, you know, there's all kinds of arguments about, uh, and very successful convincing ones about, you know, the criminal justice system being a reimagination of slavery, that type of thing. But I think it's a, a bit unfair to say that there hasn't been any progress. And so in terms of, uh, I mean, I don't, I don't think that, um, you could say that the McDonald's thing or Nike having, you know, uh, taking positions, these corporations taking positions on Black Lives Matter. I'm not sure if that is a form of success because I'm not entirely sure if that equate, if, if it equates to anything, if it equates to, you know, uh, some sort of equity of wages, like for black employees and white employees or, you know, yeah. I'm gonna go uh, on a limb and say it probably doesn't. Right, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> but if it ultimately, if if all these protests amount to police departments ultimately being defunded, then I think yeah, that's a clear win. If only because those were pushed by mass movements. I don't think anybody would credit, uh, you know, that tea company, uh, for uh, defunding the the you know the Minneapolis police department. Even though I have suspicions, I really don't think that's going to happen. But Still, nevertheless, the fact that there were mass movements that were successful in some uh, some arena that that I think that's a good thing. Yeah, I mean, so that that kind of gets that sort of that that actually really helps clarify what I'm trying to still work out as I as I say it, right? Which is, I think it's kind of a question of how you understand power, because yeah, like I think you know, like someone like Frederick Douglass would look at and did look at like the Declaration of Independence, and argue that the country he lived in should adapt 
to th- adapt its reality of its of its institutions to its proclaimed vision for itself. And so there's a way in which like the normalization of something can actually it isn't like make it's not like ideology becomes material force and then people move into struggle, but rather that the relationship between the two is like you said all men are created equal. I'm a man, so shouldn't we both be created equal? Uh, and if that's the case, then we have a contradiction to resolve. So by enshrining that declaration in, in, in a way in which they, in a way that actually has a real relationship to power, I think, you know, maybe there's a really important argument to be made about things which in the first instance are symbolic victories that have to become actualized. And I think that is something different from like the difference between a company and the state is pretty profound there. Uh, if we think of ourselves as subjects, uh, you know, I, I think we we have to, I, I don't know, I guess maybe what we need to be cautious of is the notion that the way that our agency and subjectivity gets, uh, has any weight, or the, the only way that it exists is based on like how you shop, as opposed <laughs> to like the pressure yeah. that you can place on the people who get to decide which companies even exist in the first place, which right. is, you know, the power of the state. Because that's the real relationship between the state and, you know, the market, companies, private corporations, capital, etc. So maybe my fear is just like we have it backwards right now. Well, yeah, I mean, that was what I would say. And the reason why I've always been so completely dismissive of woke capitalism as a as any kind of sign of progress is because the way that Americans understand in large part understand our relationship to anything as as individuals and with buying power largely like we see like americans see each one of us as a little autonomous a little autonomous zone and we're we're given this liberty or whatever and the way that you can support something is by giving it money or withholding your money and so the ultimate illustration of victory in a lot of people's minds is the fact that the culture appears to be changing around them even if the relationship to power for oppressed peoples hasn't changed at all. So um, while I see that these sorts of like woke branding things can be seen as a bellwether of how popular sentiment is changing, it doesn't necessarily mean that it is a victory. It could be just a distraction because it could serve as Look, we have victory. I see people whose last name sounds like mine. I see people whose skin color is similar to mine are now represented in Marvel movies or, you know, a, a gay couple of color is being used in this McDonald's advertisement or whatever. You know, the appearance of progress is given in order to be able to make money. Because, of course, I think that recuperation is, is both uh, incidental to capitalism as a necessary way to just brand and and conscious as a, as a way to sideline people's you know attention so i think that like while it does like i'm, I'm going to reiterate but while it is a bellwether of the the change in consciousness and the shifting moods of the people i think it is also just both a a deliberate and just part of capitalism way to distract people away from actual goals because i think that and this is i think this can be seen to have played out recently that um, once people see that a bunch of statues came down and a bunch of brands rebranded as woke, it seemed like some modicum of victory had been achieved. And a lot of people just backed off. Not everybody. Of course, there's still people out there like, you know, hitting it pretty hard. Especially in Portland. 
Right, right. Yeah. But those the, those are now the exception instead of the rule. Well, I think it's a. I think that's probably the least cynical take is that you know, these co- corporate tweets are a bellwether of a, you know a shifting culture in the United States. I don't think that it's a just. Like I don't, I, I'm not entirely sure that somebody buying a McDonald's Happy Meal believes that that's activism, but maybe they do. Maybe that's. I think some people do. I don't think I, everybody does. I think. Well, I, I don't. I don't know if anybody. I don't know if very many people consciously think of it as activism, but I do think that the vast majority of American uh, 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 of Americans locate their agency primarily in their identity as consumers. So I I do think that a majority, if not a vast majority of people, at least on some sort of subconscious level, do think, uh, well, I'm going to, I'm going to, you know, buy this thing because they said the, the nice woke things that are good now that I now agree with that I, you know, hadn't thought about uh, six months Pre, you know, before this, uh, instead of the other company that didn't say the nice, good woke things, uh, even like if they the lib reaction to Kaepernick. Yeah, yeah, no, and, exactly. And Nike, you know, even if they don't necessarily consciously think of themselves as being activists by buying a happy. Well, look, and like I don't know, I don't know who uses Instagram, but uh, in my experience, plenty of people who have like a fairly. Um, let's say like a a similar critique about the world that they live in as my own in you know at least on the surface level these are not people who i would call like you know libs but that you know will periodically share in stories like here's a list of women-owned businesses to support why wouldn't you call them libs uh i only mean to say that i wouldn't be so dismissive as to say oh these are people who are liberal so this is to be expected or like you know during the because it's Black Lives Matter is the is the moment. It's like here's a list of black owned businesses to support. And and not here's a list of uh here's a list of businesses in which they're union businesses to support. Here's a list of non sweatshop ones. And even those I think there's a there's still a, a consumer still a very liberal way to look at it. Sure. It, there's still a very consumer activist approach to things, but it's like the fact that uh this is a black owned business doesn't really tell you much about any sort of Anything about liberation. Even yeah, it doesn't tell you shit about their black employees or whatever other right. employees. Well, like right. Like- and so it's, it's just like a knee jerk way to, to, this is what, I mean, I, I feel like these are words that have to be chosen carefully because I do agree about, I, I can, I can understand why representation is an important thing to anybody who doesn't feel represented. And I think that's why there's, I think there's such a thing as like, it's, a, it's, it has made life better for some people in some ways by doing something that gets in, that gets normalized and, and mainstreamed and distributed, however uh, inequitably. But at the cool. same time, that's that's something different than a challenge to the system. That it can be both a good thing and also not the thing you think it is. It's not revolutionary just because a business is promoting something that you happen to agree with. Well, I think it made a difference under COVID that those that those businesses would have otherwise gone other probably. If they were small, mm. black and brown owned businesses, they hadn't gotten that, you know. I mean, I'm, I'm sure there'll be studies on this and stuff like that, but but I think that did make a difference. Which impacts the, the aggregate wealth in black uh, mm-hmm. and brown communities. Yeah, that's true. Well, so, black specifically. I always say black and brown, but yeah, we're talking about black folks. 
one of my one of my somewhat controversial positions is that people of color is a is a concept that obliterates the distinctions by making like there's white people and then there's everyone else. It's like I don't know, man. I feel like maybe uh, the difference between growing up like as an Asian person in San Francisco versus you know uh, like a Salvadoran in Chicago or a Haitian in New Orleans. Like I think these are all probably very different experiences. Especially but it's not that's not really person, the point, I guess. Go ahead. Like a black person in South Texas where the racism comes from all sides because, you know, a lot of the uh Latino folks here are um incredibly racist towards black people. And, I've known I've known yeah. Mexican neo Nazis. <laughs> yeah. You know the the Voodoo Glow Skulls wrote a song about it, remember? Yeah. It's called Mexican. I mean, look, I mean, that's like a, that's not the most, uh, that's not a hill I'm willing to die on. I think a good, a good argument could, that could probably be made to dissuade me from the, the hardest stance on that. It's probably not, it's probably worth actually like making the, the distinction that you are making. Um, I've heard, yeah, I've heard the challenge that people of color is just a way of erasing black people, basically, because we talk about the oppression of black, yeah, a P- POC, and now it's by POC. Um, it's like the queer thing, like it just keeps changing. <laughs> um, but, uh, you know, I, I'm on board with that. Like I'm, you know, a formerly undocumented immigrant. I've like very poor and had my, certainly had my own challenges, but I certainly don't know what it's like to be a black person. Um, but that is, but it's hard to, I don't want to, everybody has their own, um, forms of discrimination, right? There is a distinction like I was saying, um, I think before we started recording of different immigrant groups. Right. Um, so like if you had the, if you had the means to have a visa and a plane ticket, you're probably middle-class if you are from an immigrant group. And so you see that with, um, the so-called model minorities and stuff like that, uh, with, with, uh, lots of Asians and stuff like that. So, um, you know, that is, that is distinct from paying, uh, coyote $10,000 to like smuggle you over the border where like something like 70 to 80% of women are, are raped. You know, that's very distinct, uh, experience. That said, I'm not going to dismiss the fucking, the hate crimes that have been committed against Chinese sure. people because of the, you know, because of COVID. So uh, that, you know, I, I think there is something distinct about anti-black racism. And I think yes. that's been consistent historically. And I think it's really hard to argue against is that every single culture, it seems globally, black folks uh, are always marginalized. So you have to, you know, you have to recognize that. Um, but yeah, I, you know, there's varying degrees of usefulness in terms of lumping everybody together because we, it's just, yeah. We all hail from a political lineage uh, of school of thought that at least in this country says that the the precursor to a necessary uh, ig- igniting spark of social revolution in this country is the Black Rebellion. It's not. It's not an uprising of any other type of, of any other group of people. It's that there's this very specific relationship of uh, the way in which anti-Black racism is not just coded, but you know whatever. It's it's foundational to every institution and every law that's been written in this country. And every, every bit of progress has been like tinkering with the existing laws built around it. Um, and I think there's something to that that I'm, that seems right. You know, I don't know what that says about woke capitalism other than that, uh, 
it sounds like a, a good way to try to stave off that that igniting spark. Or at well, least capitalism it, it, is not as good as Black Rebellion. Yeah, <laughs> I prefer the Black Rebellion. <laughs> it's a good foundational concept for this yeah. yeah conversation. Well, I mean, a question that I maybe don't have perfectly formulated, but that I'm I'm trying to sort of work work uh, work out a little bit as I you know recently is that um is the is precisely the 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 fact that uh up to this point um i guess you could locate its origin in the rise of neoliberal capitalism and and uh which included the left wing of neoliberal capitalism which is what seems to be predominant right now what the subject of this conversation is woke capitalism uh up to this point the left uh in the US anyway has emphatically and repeatedly made the point that um capitalism uh requires racism and in particular anti-black racism and uh racism needs capitalism they're you know inter they're they're connected you take down one and you're taking out the leg of a three-legged chair uh of of the other you know Woke capitalism seems to be trying to say, no, that's okay. We can take out one of these legs and we're, this is like good and healthy and, and, and we're, we're fine. And in fact, better for it as a world. Uh, uh, because I, I think that I, I definitely do think that there are many, um, actors within the, you know, the contemporary, mo- the moment that we're in who are, uh, you know, McDonald's posting uh, the whoever's running the Twitter account for McDonald's. I, I would suspect they genuinely believe the things that they're saying uh, that they're posting on there that Black Lives Matter and this is an important moment and no longer can we remain silent. We have to take a position and uh, etc. What does that say about um, that sort of traditional left position that? racism uh is interwoven uh with capitalism in in class society and contemporary capitalism and what does it say for the anti-racist left in how we approach the question of uh race and racism in in america i it's a i i don't i don't have an answer i don't even have a properly formulated question uh, but it's something that I'm trying to grapple with. I see. And, co- and I work with a lot of liberals because, uh, you mm. know, we're for union. Um, and then union leadership is typically, typically liberals. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, I see it honestly as an entry point, And maybe it's my militant optimism <laughs> as a socialist. <laughs> but, um, you know, folks seem to be on board that racism is bad. Right. Yeah. We got them there. Like we got them <laughs> saying that and proclaiming it and, you know, making signs and stuff like that. So why not use it as an opportunity to um, introduce the, the concept of racial capitalism and kind of take them to a new level? Um, because it's, I think that's a, unequivocally, again, a good thing that they're there, you know, in terms of having one-on-one conversations with people. And, you know, the thing that you don't want to do, which I, I do see a lot of, and I'll be frank, is is individualizing racism, is, you know, focusing on the microaggressions and the... Um, uh, things like that. Um, so that's one form. And is it, you know, is it terrible or is it fine? I, I don't, I, I don't know. 
Um, if that is ultimately a, a distraction from the work that we should be doing as a union movement, which is dismantling in, institutional capitalism uh, that is tied up with 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 the institution, I'm sorry, in, institutionalized racism, which is tied up with capitalism, um, then yes. But it, you don't. If we're doing the work that we're supposed to be doing, that's not just the only thing that's going to happen. Is folks are going to get a, a an evening long training on on microaggressions, uh, you know, and, and implicit bias, which, you know, you could argue does make a, does have a material, uh, does have a, an impact on the lives of young, uh, young black, uh, young black students, you know, in mm-hmm. terms of you're forcing somebody who's an educator or somebody who's an education employee. And again, I, I'm clearly speaking about my own industry here, but like ha- at least having them self reflect, um, in terms of how many times they send that kid, uh, down to the principal's office to write them up or whatever. So, um, you know, I don't, is it, is it revolutionary? No, but is it an entry point? I I think, yeah, I think all, everything that's been going on, I think the conversations about, um, you know, uh, rebellion about the nature of rebellion, you know, the distinction between calling this looting versus or rioting versus rebellion, you know, I see it again, my, my optimism, I see it all as an entry point. Um, so I don't, it's, I, I inherently want to reject this notion that, you know, it's, it's, it's to be cynical and stuff like that. Maybe you guys disagree. I think that concessions made by corporations to, you know, do sensitivity training or, um, you know, to make everybody read white fragility or whatever else that corporations are doing in an attempt to be less racist is like you said, it's all individualization of racism. I think that capitalism is has reached a point where it's okay with confronting individualized racism. It has not reached a point where it's okay with confronting institutional racism. It doesn't really want to do anything about institutional racism. It wants to do whatever it can, which is just advise people not to be racist. A, a lot of the liberals in these big corporations who probably you know, professed to be anti-racist and would like it if everybody else did as well. They they probably think that they're doing good. You know, like I know some people that work in, for corporations doing their, their uh, inclusivity training and stuff like that. And they really, really think that they're changing the world. And, mm-hmm. and like, and like you said, it could be an entry point. But I think that that's where, that's what they would like to stop with is just making people aware of their microaggressions and their, that is the kind of anti-racism that doesn't challenge capitalism. Um, right. Of course it could be a starting point for something else, but if that is, if that alone is all there is, then, then it is a distraction. And I think that because the way liberals and actually I would say probably a majority of the left that doesn't realize that they're just liberals, um, would, they would, do their mea culpas and like talk a lot about their privilege and try try not to to show show signs of their individualized racism and they would consider that like doing the work. I think that that doesn't challenge capitalism. I think that capitalism is okay with that kind of anti racism. Yeah, I mean, I think I think I largely agree with that. The um the Forbes article, uh, how the woke capitalists can save the world. Yeah. Or no, how the woke capitalists can save America. Because, you know, that's what's tantamount that's, to America. That's the whole part of the world that's important. <laughs> yeah. I, I really, I, I really like the way that this is presented because it's so clear 
you know, sometimes you don't have to do a lot of divining to figure out what the, the, the mouthpieces of and apologists for and proponents of, of the current social order really, really think. They write it down like this says that the captains of industry and finance realized they had to rethink capitalism. So the rabble wouldn't rise up against it. They got woke. They all talk about diversity, equality, and justice. They're all fighting the power. And he's not, the author isn't being like, you know, cheeky or, or like making a joke here. This is an expression of an ideology. This is what, this is what this person actually thinks. And it's not like a, it's not a medium post. It's Forbes, you know, it's a, and there's a bunch of them like this. Uh, what are the other ones? I don't have to, I'm not going to read a bunch of quotes, but like Time magazines, white corporations can no longer avoid politics. New York Times, rise of woke capital. They all kind of sound this familiar, uh, the this, this same bell. It's like we can preserve what we have by adopting the language of and the mission of spreading around not just representation, but like inclusivity in terms of like, yeah, we'll have a have a queer person on the boardroom and it's double plus if they're also a queer person of color. And so now, but it's, you know, yes, obviously for some people that's a cynical, just like, you know, making a token gesture so that people shut up. But I actually think that this person thinks that saving capitalism is the same as saving the world because they believe in it. They think it is a thing that makes life better because it provides, you know, whatever opportunity and abundance and all the stuff that they, they do actually think is true. Um, and I think that's where the the big the big problem with the popular front isn't working alongside liberals to achieve social gains. It's mistaking ourselves as being like perpetual allies. Like at some point we come up against the disagreement about what actually saving the world looks like. It just seems an important thing to keep in the forefront of our minds that there are people who think, yeah, we can ad- we can adopt every single one of your social movement demands and that will make the system better. And whereas we would like to think anyways that if you adopted all of them, it would make it not work as well. Maybe it remains to be seen which one turns out to be true. Is that the Forbes article that basically argued for like old school, like 1970s era economic protectionism and we should yes. produce the PEP? Okay. Yeah, yeah. that's actually it was, yeah, pretty The funny thing is, it was also Forbes, like, you know, yeah. let's let's move away from China a little bit, right? Oh, yeah. Yellow well, power, communism. Hey everybody, Chris here. Just wanted to remind you guys of a couple of things. First of all, we have a Patreon. And if you like listening to us and think we deserve $2 a month of your hard-earned money, please go and sign up. Right now, our patrons get access to irregularly posted content that includes special episodes, where we do deep dives into stuff that might be too nerdy for our main feed, extra content from episodes that go way longer than we expected, and impromptu discussions of events and articles that we think are worth a bit of attention. The second thing I wanted to remind everyone of is that we are now part of the Lost Horizons Network, which is a dialectical pessimist podcasting network that includes us, The Regrettable Century, Red Library, and From 78. You can listen to us, Red Library, and From 78 using your favorite podcatching app, or find us by searching our respective names on Twitter and Facebook. We also have a special Lost Horizons Network collaboration podcast, which is a roundtable discussion including members of all three podcasts. Our network website can be found at 
losthorizonsnetwork.com, which will be linked in the show notes. Our roundtable discussions will be available to listen on your favorite podcatching app, and also look out for us on social media. Just search for The Lost Horizons Network. And as always, please remember to subscribe, rate, and review us on iTunes. Those ratings and reviews help trick the algorithm into thinking that we are important and have something interesting to say. All right, back to the show. But just very briefly, because I feel like I'm, I've been shitting on microaggressions a lot just because my organization pushes them so much as like being the answer. I will say that if it prevents people from being, saying shitty racist things to their colleagues, it is, it is worthwhile to have them. Because it's got, it's at least uh, once a year, I'll go to a union meeting and somebody uses the term illegals, you know, and it's just like, it would be nice if that didn't happen, you know, yeah. and that's just what I experience. Like, I'm, you know, I, I can't imagine what my black colleagues go through. I do, I, I do know because I talk to them, but, uh, you know, I, if it, if it, uh, if it eases the load of the, of the perpetual anxiety of black people working in white dominated spaces, because this, this does translate medically, right? That, you know, black people do have hypertension and stuff like that. And a lot of it has to do with, um, their, their, their status in this country. I don't think microaggressions trainings are going to do that. I think you do need a fundamental institutional, um, well, revolution, not just reform. If it could just prevent those moments where someone says some mean shit, and you got to sit there and you got to be like, am I going to say something? Am I going to make this my problem right now? And then no other white person does it. Like no, no white people say anything in reaction to what that was just said. And then you just got to leave and just be like, fuck, I got it. Now I got to sit with this. Uh, mm-hmm. If it prevents moments like that, then maybe it is worth, you know, a, an afternoon or two or a half day training, whatever. So I don't want to be completely dismissive because as I was saying that, it's just I'm just sick of them because it's like I said, it's the only approach to reform. Right. And I don't think. Yeah, I think that's wrongheaded. But um, anyway, I'm sorry. I got us off track. I I just I felt like I needed to get that out. (laughs) That's a that's a fair point. Um, Just I I do think that's on track, actually, because like. There is a. An emergent world in which every new hire and maybe even like quarterly uh, corporate, you know, retreat might include and probably and, and increasingly is looking like it will include exactly this thing of like discussion and training about microaggressions. And it is actually the case that there are ways to make the workplace a slightly less hostile environment, if only um, because people have to try to be a little bit less hostile. Um, but I think we could also should contrast that with uh, like what happens when people are forced to recognize common interests and the reason why we're not just liberals, right? Because uh, one of my favorite anecdotes about this that, that I've used a lot lately is I, one of the first times I ever walked the picket line in solidarity with a, with a, with a workplace that was on strike, I was there with a, with a queer comrade who um, she and I happened to be standing right next to each other. And one of the, one of the workers on the line shook his fist at the, uh, administrative building and shouted uh, a really nasty slur that uh, directly was about the person I was with. And her response was to say, hey, what's wrong with that? I mean, I'm queer and I'm here. 
and the guy's face was just like ashen because I, I don't think he's like you know his mind didn't change, but he realized like oh I could like lose support here. And then he was like, oh, I didn't mean it like that. She's like, I know, you're just trying to call him something bad, but there are worse things to be, so let's come up with something better. And then, we, you know, we all kind of like had a laugh about it and we did it. And like probably the the idea that existed in this person's head didn't wash away in that moment, right? But I think basically all I'm trying to say is I think there's a time for pointing out and dealing with the microaggressions. And then there's another way in which, hey, here's an opportunity to talk about how your self-interest basically requires you to like acknowledge the self-interest of the people around you. Uh, that's why I think ultimately we think struggle is the real teacher. Everything else is just like trying to help us get through the drudgery of our lives as it currently exists, which I think, yeah, it is a thing that is good, right? It's just not the thing. Yeah. And I would say the folks who, who are, who advocate for the microaggressions, I think they genuinely believe them. Like, I, I think they genuinely believe in, in these implicit bias trainings and stuff like that as the, as being yeah. the answer, but it's just because they don't, they've never been given an alternative. Totally. And, um, in terms of Robin D'Angelo, I've actually been to, I went to one of her big long trainings. It was like all day. It was like 9 a.m. to 4 or something like that. The white fragility five. person? The white fragility yeah. lady, yeah. And I can tell you, I, she seemed very, didn't mention capitalism once in the whole, like, uh, surprise. Yeah. It was like set. It was a long, it was a day long thing, but it was seven or eight hours. Uh, didn't mention capitalism once, but I don't doubt that she was sincere in what she said because she gave a lot of, um, she gave a lot of personal examples. She grew up very, very poor. And so, um, you know, she constantly gave examples about how, you know, being growing up poor and dirty. But still, uh, but her mother and grandmother being um, uh, really at uh, really adamant racists, and so they used racism as a way to kind of elevate their own status. When you know the fact of the matter is they were they were dirt poor, like hillbillies. So not hillbillies, but because um, I don't think I'm just, I'm just like Italian or something like that. But you know what I mean? Like she was just they were just very very poor, and they she recognizes that she, that her family uses racism as a tool to feel better. So I don't doubt that she's sincere. Um, she also sincerely charges like $6,000 a day. <laughs> so I don't know how she reconciles that personally. Maybe she thinks like, fuck these corporations. Like, why shouldn't I get money from, uh, you know, cold, cold old banker to do these trainings? Why not? Yeah, fuck you, you know? pay me. Yeah, the American yeah. ideology. I mean, look, yeah. I think if you paid me $6,000 a day for, you know, for a grift, I could probably sleep at night. Um, <laughs> pretty comfortably yeah. if i was like you know like lecturing the people at goldman sachs about like better ways to uh i don't know what whatever whatever grift it was i thought i could get away with but then sleep comfortably you know, on egyptian cotton sheets yeah that's yeah i would eat oh. as many meals a day as i wanted but okay um, but i think that the the way in which like the 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 corporate culture becomes, you know, that becomes everyone's culture is that like, I know a lot of really well-intentioned people who have actually been present when, you know, tear gas went off, who then go home and say, that here's something I just learned reading White Fragility. And everyone needs to read this book. And there's like a checklist of, you know, proper allyship. And I see these things as being completely incongruent, like in direct contradiction with each other. The, the way that, that this particular approach to, you know, trying to 
beat out the racism from within your subconscious uh, becomes like a personal crusade of every individual. And then the grift seems to be, a, well, it seems to not be a grift, right? Like, like you said, I think this person really does believe this, that this is the way to deal with it. And, it, and it's, it's just so bizarre to me the way that these two, these two approaches can exist in a person's mind at the same time. So to tread on familiar territory here, I'm going to go ahead and say that this approach to like exercising the the demons of racism that are in you uh, is very, very much ingrained in our culture as part of our Puritan heritage in the United <laughs> States, where whenever there's a bad thing inside of you, it's a thing that you must constantly struggle with and perform perform your indication that you are attempting to expel it in order to prove that you are a good person, that you are like of the elect, you're, you're saved or whatever. Uh, so it's like, it's a very religious kind of relationship to internal, to, to problems that people have. Like if, a if you hold bad views, you have to self-flagellate, you know, you have to do the public renunciation, be willing to sit in the stockades and have people throw tomatoes at you and stuff like that for a little bit. And it, and it's just like this, this very like Protestant kind of religious way of, uh, working out the problems that are yours and yours alone, your inner demons that you must battle and you can pray real hard and everything like that. And that'll help you get rid of them. That, that's kind of the way I, I see this approach and it carries through as part of this you know, I mean, like I, I mentioned this in every single episode we do that this book that we're reading called Enchantments of Mammon talks about the way that Americans have really internalized capitalism as a sort of mystified force that uh, determines everything around us like it's a religion. You know, we adhere to capitalism as though it were a supernatural entity. But anyway, so uh, I think that. Basically, my point being that our relationship to uh, social problems is a very sort of inter inward looking sort of Protestant way of dealing with any kind of problem. Is that, can I ask, okay, so in terms of, of this kind of rugged, I, I see it more as ru just rugged individualism, I've, done, I've not necessarily tied it to. That's a very Protestant uh, thing. <laughs> right, yeah, certain, yeah. any certain religion. Um I like, I had this philosophy professor, uh, in college who would always go on about is like these, you know, uh, people in this country and their Protestant work ethic. <laughs> yeah. Um, but anyway, I, I, I don't, I'm not going to say that I'm outside, or somehow outside of U.S. hegemony. I think that would be absolutely ridiculous to claim. No. no. I know growing, if we're going to take a kind of, if we're personalizing this or, or we're individual, we're talking about individualism, I felt like growing up my, obligation and i mean it in a bad way too was always to my family and like i went to school so i could get a good job so i could support my family and so i don't know and that was always in the back of my mind because that's just part of the immigrant experience and stuff like that and just this, right. just like the sense of responsibility that you have and so i don't know anything outside of that so it, so what do you grow up thinking I'm is is the idea that I'm just is the focus that I'm I'm going to be happy and that's the 
the goal in life is yes. to find my own personal happiness. Oh yeah, personal fulfillment, personal happiness, personal yeah. betterment, and that's about it. That's what there is. Yeah, absolutely. But fam- is it family has to be part of it. Like it has to be. There has to be some sense of of uh, communal something. Very superficially, I would say, for wasp culture, I, I think that like family is something that you talk about being important without actually giving it any importance in your life. Like um, uh, work is work is the most important, right? And you have to work all the time so that you can have uh, a good life for your family. But then if you work so much that you're never around your family, then what's the point, right? But anyway, I think work is the most important thing in like in America, like I would say mainstream American culture. And I would say that we kind of grew up in a sort of one foot in this, this very communal familial kind of way of understanding the world and one foot in that very individuated, seek out your own fortune and your own happiness kind of way, like my family did, because I know that 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 communal sense exists, because anytime I have ever needed anything, my family has been like, move home, We'll help you out. We'll help you get back on your feet, you know, and anytime anything happens, the entire family is there to help. And family gatherings are super important. Missing a family gathering is like anathema on one side of my family, right? My immigrant side of my family. The other side of my family is very much so the other way, which is like, well, I've got to teach you a lesson. It's going to be a hard lesson. So if you're failing and you're going to like lose everything, then, you know, that'll be the way that you learn not to do that again. And uh, they, they hate each other. They fight all the time. They're constantly like, like writing each other off and not speaking to each other for months on end. You know, like when it's like when my, my grandmother died, we just family just fell apart. No one ever see no one ever saw each other ever again. You know, it's it's been years since I've seen my family. My entire yeah. family is just entirely categorically wasp. It's just yeah. top to bottom all the way through. They talk about family a lot, but it's, you know, it's all talk. Yeah. So, but like, like, I, I see where you're coming from. Like, I know that that exists on, for one side of my family and a certain extent, probably not as much so for you because your, your family's immigration status is a lot more recent than mine. You know, we've had a few generations here, but that, that real tight knit, old world style of communal family the ideal still exists and people are willing to act on it when it's when they need to you know what's really interesting nice. like i never really thought about that until you just said that yeah and i don't want to i don't want to like uh i don't want to romanticize family like i like i love my family but i fucking hate my family you know, just like everybody <laughs> else <laughs> like they're mean and they're you know politically we're very different so we just don't talk about those things but um but yeah that was always that was always the goal of college yeah my, my family like i can i can uh get them to agree with communism by couching it in catholic terms <laughs> <laughs> another entry point yep. <laughs> i was gonna say like it's it's really interesting the way in which like there's a lot of like there's a traditional reassertion of like family as the uh as the sphere of life that is, you know, from which person, a person's identity comes, which is also like deeply reactionary. And it, and it's interesting how that those people also, like that kind of person on the right is also deeply hostile to like political, um, the idea of companies taking on, taking on a role in politics. And also like the way that Kevin had alluded to a little while ago is the, that there's a version of an economic protectionism, which is, 
super retrograde. Um, you know, we, we talk a lot about the difference between like a reactionary national, uh, not nationalism, but or like a reactionary romanticism, whatever, whatever form it takes, like nationalism or something, and, uh, and a radical or a, and a progressive romanticism. And it's, it's difficult to sort out the difference between the two sometimes. Mm-hmm. Like we, we have, we've regularly made jokes about how people will share a video of like, you know, Comrade Coulter for the question mark, because it's like Ann Coulter saying something which is kind of true. And it's like, well, it, the thing that she's saying happens for once, for once to not be just an absolute lie that she knows is a lie. But her motivation in this case is to like channel like rage against immigrants. Uh, and talking about economic justice is like, it's not new for people on the right. This is not a point of conversion. So, um, the reason, one of the reasons why I thought like having an anti woke left as part of the thing to talk, part of what we should talk about is like, how do we square with the ways in which we sometimes are like kind of saying the same things as people who are like objectively the bad guys? I actually would like to bridge these two parts of this conversation by talking about the family real quick. Like, um, in, in our society, like, uh, like Marxists talk a lot about the abolishment of the family, right? But what we're seeing under capitalism right now is the family is being abolished, but not replaced with anything. Um, the Marxist idea of the abolishment of the family, the Aufhebung, right, is the, the, the changing of the conditions that make the communal family so necessary so that the society that exists transcends the need for that family to take care of each other communally because we are living in a communal society. It's not the idea that we need to just abolish the family. It's the idea that we need to transform society so that the communal nature of family is nothing, nothing like novel. Society is so communal that the need for this communal family doesn't exist anymore. And then yeah, it's not of course, so much like it's illegal to know who your mom is. Yeah. <laughs> it, it's not like, you know, if, if you're not living in the polycule, then you get taken to the reeducation camp, you know? <laughs> It's the transcending, and that the same thing goes for religion in Marxism too. It's not like Marx's idea of the abolishment of religion was the abolishment of the con- the conditions that made people need to feel religious. They need to seek seek a better life when they die because there's nothing here on earth for them or whatever. I have my doubts about whether or not religion will ever go away, but th- I just wanted to make that point because I think a lot of the anti woke left goes with the idea that because capitalism is in the process of abolishing the family that strengthening the family is the, is the way to fight capitalism. And that's kind of what the Frankfurt school did too. They, they had, they kind of had that idea in uh, coming out of world war two, thinking that totalitarianism was the, the, the family was a refuge from totalitarianism, right? So it strengthened their idea of, the, of like that they needed to defend the family against the totalitarian state. And I think that the anti-woke left, along with, you know, having ideas about opposing open borders because the Koch brothers are for open borders and opposing the abolishment of the family because the, uh, the capitalism is already abolishing the family. It sort of like obscures the top, the topic of conversation because they don't understand what these things are actually about. It's just a reaction to the situation on the ground without any sort of understanding of it. Like, of course, mm-hmm. Uh, I don't remember what it was that I was listening to where like 
the, the abolishment of the family comes up and they kind of mocked it saying, oh, you're the abolishment family, but Marx and Engels said. And I was like, yeah, Marx and Engels didn't say like, send in the Red Guards to take the kids away and put them with a different family they don't know. They said abolish the conditions that make the communal nuclear family necessary, not you know, execute all moms. So <laughs> I, I don't know, you know, whatever. And uh, that, that was just something that was weighing on my mind while we were talking about the family. Because as, as, as it stands right now, if it, if it weren't for my family, I don't know what I would do during COVID right now. I'm, I'm with my, if I didn't have my family, then the, the state would just say, well, go fuck off under a bridge somewhere until you die. Um, of course, luckily, I've got my family that has very old school kind of, you know, communal ways of viewing things. To, and they're here to help me out. So it is a refuge, right? For now. Yeah, yeah I, I think there's a question about whether or not that's a legitimate kind of discussion point. I, I think it's, you know, kind of in the deeper echelons of, of kind of leftist discourse, this notion about the family. I don't think any I don't think any like kind of self-respecting leftists that have any kind of presence in the United States and the media or anything like that are saying, you know, that no. we need to yeah right. abolish the right. family. <laughs> it's kind of the thing about like um I, I guess I kind of related to this the discourse about whether or not cops are workers. It's like who gives a shit? Let's just get rid of them. Like it's not. It doesn't matter. <laughs> right. You know what I mean? Like we should be able to imagine a society without them. It's it's not. I don't think it's relevant to you know these arguments about the funding police or anything like that. Yeah. I, I don't think normal people care. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think there's something I don't to be said about people. right. Um, but I think uh, what was his name? Max Elbaum. Um, who, uh, uh, what's your name again? Kevin was on a podcast with, um, argues that, you know, these, these right wing militias holding these demonstrations outside of governor's, um, mansions or, you know, state legislatures and stuff like that, demanding that the economy be reopened is they are, it is a type of advocacy that seems like it's for, you know, on behalf of a working class person who is put in a position where they need to work in order to continue living. Um, and yeah, they're, they're drawing in people who uh, are vulnerable, you know, poor working class people who are vulnerable, um, in a way that more traditional lefty, leftist kind of institutions like labor unions aren't. You know, I don't know to what extent we're visibly, um, advocating for, uh, you know, uh, universal relief. Yeah. I, w- I would say that unfortunately, the, uh, the milieu that the three of us come from is uh, very much into that sort of talking about things like abolishing the family, and, uh, living living the the way that you want the future society be, society to be now, kind of thing. Uh, that that was definitely something that came up a lot in uh, former activist circles that we used to. Well, certainly the debate about the proper categorization of the police. Yeah, absolutely. For one, at one point, like a very important live question, uh, like a critical burning question that must be addressed. And there is something kind of nice about thinking like, yeah, it's a job, but like, so is like a logger in the Amazon is also a worker doing a job. But wouldn't we like to get rid of that job? What if that didn't happen? What if we stopped doing that? Like, that would be better. And that doesn't mean like the person would slowly disappear like, Marty McFly when his parents don't kiss, right? It's just <laughs> presumably you can go get a different fucking job. 
<laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I would, I would maybe ask if the, if the, if the discourse, um, around, uh, you know, the abolition of the traditional family being made as maybe 19 year old white guys was more about just you guys not wanting kids. Like, is that part of it? <laughs> no, no. That's I actually a legit, was. That's such a legit thing. Yeah. I was getting uh, getting married at the time when I was having this argument once about how you know I, getting married is reactionary, you know. Um, and uh, you did it anyway. No, no, no. I, I wasn't saying that. I thought that. I was saying someone was telling me it was. As you were getting married. No, not as I was getting married, but like when I said <laughs> during the ceremony, standing up and yelling from the back He's of like the room. The best man. Yeah. We have a tradition in this country of leaving space for someone to like, you know, if anybody opposes this union, speak now or forever hold your peace. And <laughs> somebody got up and yelled about how as a matter a of fact, the family <laughs> I just, uh, yeah, well, I mean, like, so it was 19 year old white people, but I don't think it was guys. Uh, I, I think that a, a lot of the, this, this kind of, uh, opposition to, to the family and, you know, marriage and stuff like that comes from, uh, the third wave feminists, you know, um, who are trying to, I guess, make sense of patriarchal nuclear, fa- the, the patriarchal structure of the nuclear family or whatever, and saying that, you know, if you're participating in this patriarchal institution, then you are a reactionary. And uh, I don't necessarily agree with that, uh, but, you know. You don't think that you're a reactionary? No, I, I don't think so. <laughs> not not for that. Not for that, no. <laughs> <laughs> so there's something to be said, I, I don't know, I guess, about uh, white, cis, hetero dudes being polyamorous. Like, I'm not going to lie, that pisses me off, you know? <laughs> <laughs> Uh, yeah like i've known people who uh, who like you know coming from texas there are people in it's it's like the burning man culture you know of like uh, it's all socially constructed monogamy is a social construction so i can just like throw that away and be you know uh the, so the dude with like total, the top knot in the guitar, right at the party, yeah, the, yeah, and just be a total misogynistic piece of shit. Uh, who 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 masks that with? Oh, we're all just like free individuals uh, interacting, you know. Uh, and and it's similar to woke capitalism in that way. Yeah, actually, that's a, that's a good way to sort of like tie that back around. It really is. Yeah, uh, it's yeah. it's sort of like taking the tapestry of a valid criticism. Uh, and then infusing it with, um, uh, your own misuse of social, you know, power or social position that you have, you know, to, uh, uh, aggregate to yourself, whatever, whatever it is that you want at a, any given moment in time, uh, which is what capital seems to be doing with wokeness, uh, generally. Yeah. I think wow. it's, it's a, a perfect illustration of how, like, you say that you say the right things, you belong to the right organizations, you profess feminism, you profess, you know, whatever else. And then internally, you're just a misogynistic piece of shit because the power structures in the society that reinforce, reinforce those things haven't gone away. So you're still interacting in ways that are misogynistic. Like, you know, the, the, the time in my life when I was the biggest, most misogynistic piece of shit in the world is when I was the wokest. Um, because I thought that since I was professing these woke ideals and this like, that I was actually a good person and that I was like, I was doing more good than harm instead of actually ever even looking at myself to make sure I was doing it. I, I, I had, I was very self-righteous about, 
the way I was, the way I was living and everything. And so, like, all of the self-improvement in the world isn't going to save us. Woke capitalism is basically just, like, encouraging people to work on self-improvement and uh, accept diversity as victory. Uh, uh, diversity in film and representation as victory. I think we were trying to talk about anti-woke, uh, the anti-woke left. Well, and, all, and the woke left. I mean, yeah. I think it's... It's a part of the woke left. Uh, I would say that I was not effective. I was very not woke in reality while professing my wokeness, you know? Yeah, well, and I, I think that that's, that's, that's ultimately the objection, right? That's the, ultimately the, the, the real problem with both the anti-woke and the woke left. It, it's the exact same problem, which is that it's a, a hyperfixation on the individual and interpersonal, uh, at the, uh, uh, expense of like broader political questions of like, what, what is, uh, what are we doing as a movement, as, as an organization, uh, as a group of people, or as uh, a society? Uh, uh, where instead of looking at that and what's, um, you know, I don't know, strategically or tactically useful or, um, uh, you, you know, theoretically coherent, uh, we're instead just hyper fixated. And, you know, this is probably a, uh, a phenomenon of, uh, internet culture of everybody just being, you know, atomized individuals, uh, letting out all of their frustrations and anger about their daily lives at each other online, um, and expressing it in terms that we're all enculturated into, which is, um, hyperfixation on the individual and interpersonal. Uh, but, I think that's really ultimately the the problem with both sides of this the, that that um, it, it, that iteration. I don't think that there is necessarily a problem with people who are serious about asking deep theoretical questions, uh, examining the question of the you know the family and uh, marriage and and whatever else like that's that's fine like that's great that's wonderful we're humans and we want to uh, reflect on ourselves and our position in the world and how and the choices that we make and that's 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 fine it's a good thing but uh, that that can't be uh, a replacement for actual political engagement with the world uh, we we can't pretend that our i guess it's sort of like the default you know um inclination of the, that i was saying way earlier that the the sort of default inclination of americans generally is to uh view their agency primarily located in their consumption choices in the marketplace uh whereas we as on the left want to locate uh agency in the workplace as a uh, in your identity as a producer not in your identity as a consumer uh, uh and particularly your agency is a, a collective agency rather than an individual agency and and um and i think a lot of what we end up seeing is especially on the internet people brand building 
uh, and uh, just sort of fighting about uh, some whatever the culture war of the moment is and whatever side of that culture war they end up on. It it's all about brand building and consumption choices uh, as you are an into, you know, building your own personal identity, your own personal brand as a figure uh, in whatever space you're operating in. Um, and it's, and I, and, and I, I don't, I, I don't think that there's like a, a more right or a more wrong side of that. It's just, they're both, just fixated on the wrong things and enti- wrong questions entire. Uh, but I, I don't, uh, I mean, Lennon talks about kind of these flash in the pan moments, what happens, you know, when you have these major uprisings and stuff like that, like Occupy or, or, um, like the, the rebellions that we're seeing across the United States. And then unless you've built a party, unless you've provided an ideological foundation for people to fall back on, ultimately they're just going to revert to liberalism, right? And they're going to revert to liberal values and they're going to think like, um, if I buy this t-shirt, then I'm supporting uh, BLM or whatever. And so it kind of speaks to what, um, you know, what, what our responsibility is, 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 is socialist activists and stuff like that. I mean, I think that it doesn't, it doesn't, even he said afterward, it doesn't necessarily have to go that way. Like, that's not exactly the route that you have to go. Um, but it does speak to, um, kind of our challenge, um, as, as socialists is filling that void, right. With, with something that, with, with, with something that speaks to working class people, if, you know, I'm not, I mean, I have have a degree in philosophy. I'm not going to like sit here and shit on philosophy, but, um, you know, the fact that nobody has ever tried, made an effort to make it accessible. Mm-hmm. I think speaks volumes about, you know, how much we value it and stuff like that. So, mm. um, I think we try to. Who's we? <laughs> Who's the yeah. we? Yeah. yeah. The, the three of us. You guys? Yeah. yeah. Okay. <laughs> Cause we don't know, like I'm a philosophy dummy, but I'm trying to learn it. And, uh, we talk about it on the show all the time. So like, you know, <laughs> I don't think, but I don't think the philosophy necessarily works. I mean, I think that, not that it doesn't work. I think it's fun, but it's it's intellectual masturbation the way that it's treated now. Oh, absolutely. Um, I think that's true. Yeah. Yeah. And so, you know, I don't know if, if producing mass philosophical texts, if that's going to be the inroads with the working class. Not, and it's not to say that they're stupid. I, I think that we just, we would have to connect that to their material day-to-day interests and stuff like that, which I don't, right. I don't see anybody doing that now who's a philosopher. Yeah. Yeah, like I think Henri Lefebvre has some really interesting and deep insights into the the everyday, and I don't think that his uh, rhythm analysis is like make sure you pick up several copies of that before you you know go talk to your coworkers about what's wrong at work. I don't think that yeah I don't I, I think that there's a, there's a step in between there in terms of like trying to like I think it is important, but I think that it's the it's you're right that the bridge between the two is is probably not just like hey you should get as smart as i think i am so that we can then struggle together you know <laughs> it's like there's a re- you know like what is the thing that makes a philosophical uh idea relevant to you is uh that's that's the question so how how does this connect to your to your not just your daily life in terms of like you know your physical well-being because i think everybody has whatever you want to call it 
a soul, uh, an, an inner aspiration for like a, a higher appreciation of the world. But I, I think make, like you said, making it accessible is a, let's say it's, it's not a very well-trodden ground. What it takes to make philosophy accessible is by making it relatable. And usually we do the opposite. It's, it's way up here. Like, Come ascend to the heights if you, if you can and join me up here to, to discuss the thing which is immediately relevant to your life, like the nature of freedom, the role of the self. Uh, these are important things for, for everybody, but we, we treat them like they're not important, so then they can't be relevant to people. I would, yeah. I would say that like attempting to view the world with a little bit more philosophical rigor has really helped me maintain what little bit of faith I have in our project because I, you know, had some serious activist burnout after like almost two straight decades of just busting my ass with all of my free time, uh, trying to combat whatever injustice it was that I was coming up against that week with whatever group I was involved in at the time. And, um, I got to a really sort of nihilistic place. And I think that reacquainting myself with Marxist philosophers who tried to help me, who I attempted to make sense of things that I couldn't make sense of has really helped me sort of like reinvigorate what it is that I think is possible. Um, and I, I think that there, there's a utility in that, but I don't think it's broadly, uh, available to people and it's probably not you know you probably don't want to like jason said you know take marcuse down and have a reading group at the the walmart that's trying to unionize <laughs> right yeah i mean i, I was kind of having this conversation with a friend on facebook um about the role of academia and mm -hmm. uh she was just talking about like the racist shit that people you know heard that she had had professors tell her when she was in graduate school uh, people told her like right to her face that the only reason she's in graduate school is because of affirmative action, that type of thing. And so her thing is that, um, her thing is that, uh, academia is, is valuable because the assumption is that, uh, black people don't have the intellectual capacity to participate in higher education. Mm -hmm. Um, and so she does believe that there is a type of activism, um, black activism in academia and so my point was just like that it is um i wouldn't abandon higher ed um as producing uh some social social justice so some some social change but it has to be grounded in the community and i don't see that being otherwise you know yeah. i don't think i don't see so it happening without yeah and um because you, the fact of the matter is like you're not gonna ever feel comfortable in in a in a in like a really prestigious at a university or really any university uh so you have to be comfortable with this is part of the argument with her is that you have to be comfortable with just being the only person in the room to argue something you know and i felt that and you have to be you have to eventually get comfortable with these sense of isolation that you're going to feel um because that was certainly the way that i felt all throughout graduate school i mean a lot of the kids that i went with and kids were all adults but uh, you know, a lot of the people that I, I, I went with, most of them, there's very few exceptions, had, you know, they were in graduate school because their parents had graduate degrees or they, you know, their parents otherwise were college educated. You know, they came from very middle class backgrounds and stuff like that. 
and their experiences were very different than mine. And so, um, uh, you know, you just, it's just, it's a type of alienation that I feel like you have to come to terms with if you're going to, if you're going to feel comfortable. And I think one way of dealing with that is to be in the community and is to be organizing and is to have some connection with actual working class people. And it doesn't even, yeah, it's not just emotionally, but it makes your scholarship better, you know, unless you're, you know, unless your goal in life is to, is to produce this shit that nobody's going to read, you know, I mean, maybe that could be your goal is just to be completely isolated. But, um, if you really (laughs) want to, that's a shit goal. Yeah. Um, but you know, the, the type of intellectual masturbation that we're all talking about, if you just want to be, you know, have tea every once in a while with your colleagues and you think that's activism and what you discuss con or whatever. Um, but yeah, it just, it, it, there's just no way in my mind of getting around the connection to the community. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. I would love, well, I would love to have tea with my colleagues and discuss con, but, um, totally. I don't, I don't think that I would be think- activism though. Yeah, I also think that masturbation is perfectly healthy and normal, and people should do it if they want to do it. You know, like, <laughs> but we shouldn't mistake it for for what it for, isn't. Sure, it's oh, not it's um, not actual sex. Yeah, that, that's a no, no. That's another point, though. It's like you know, masturbation is just masturbation. It's not revolutionary. You know, sort of like you your your polycule is just a polycule. It's not revolutionary. Yeah. You know, <laughs> right? Like the, you're you're, you're your alternative lifestyle can't like fundamentally yeah. the, the core of what it of it, the the nature of the exploitative relationship between capital and labor. But it might but no, like be better. It might make you. I'm not not that they're exactly the same. Being a ivory tower academic to being in a polycule, yeah. but <laughs> in terms of their challenge to capitalism, they're probably about the same. If if, if everybody was in a polycule, then we would just have more polycule themed TV shows and yeah, marketing. Well, What's so, a polycule? I'm sorry. Is that okay. is that five people having sex? Po, po, it's like it's well, it it could be five, but it's just it's more than two. You know, it's, oh, it's, it's like, more than a couple. Sorry. Yeah, well, yeah. Okay, more than a couple. Okay. It's it's like a. It's a relationship arrangement that is that encomp- all, encompasses all more us, than two. Yeah, yeah. All five of us are dating and we live together, and so that's like a poly. Not us. Like, that's not a reference to my own life. <laughs> Though I think this is a reason why there is an anti woke left, right? Because there is this, uh, and it's it's similar to an anti intellectualism because there is such a thing as the ivory tower, and there is such a thing as uh, the lifestyle, the the purportedly revolutionary lifestyle. And, uh, and they're, they're useless to us. So there is like, just like there is anti-intellectualism, which is bad, right? There's also an anti-woke left, which is like a, a kind of visceral gut level rejection of really any attempt to understand the complexities of, of life as a, as a marginalized person, you know, and it, even when it's not like, you know, not necessarily hostility, like it's, it, it comes from a, 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 a inability to sift through all the bad, right? And and it maybe even an unwillingness to recognize the like legitimate motivations that give rise to all of the terrible, stupid ways that we talk about oppression. But that but oppression is real, and it is necessary to like to to analyze and dissect and try to figure out how to address in the here and now, right? Because our thinking isn't so linear, wooden as to truly believe i would like to think that uh that, that we don't truly believe first the revolution and then 
all the all the social questions kind of flow from having achieved the, the primary victory. Even though I do think in the in a, in, a, in the final sense, it's like what undergirds and makes real and actually gives like breathes real life into these struggles against oppression. Probably is the is the you know the overthrow of the of the capitalist system. But I think that the the anti yeah, probably. Yeah, probably. But I think that just like the, there's, there's like an overwokeness, which is informed in the first instance by something very genuine and important. I also think that the anti-wokeness is, has, has a rational kernel. Yeah, I was going to ask, that's, like, does anybody take those philosophy. people seriously? Um, w- wait, which people? The, the overly, the overly earnest woke people or the like hostile anti-woke people? The hostile anti-woke people. I think there's an audience for it. I think, uh, maybe it's sort of, shrinking or maybe it's not very big but like uh but uh right. on the subject of an entry of, a, of an entry point like there are people who think that dumbing down uh you know the the, the critiques and the and the and the, the, the approach to oppression that that like makes people uncomfortable he is actually a way to win them over so that maybe over time they'll become them. i think i think that there are a lot of messes on the left i think we we notice wokeness more because of the way that there's such a thing as woke capitalism, so it celebrates it more. But I think that there's a there's a significant anti-woke segment of the left, even if it's a significant minority of it. I think there's an even bigger portion of the left that is anti-woke that just keeps its mouth shut. Yeah. Yeah, that, that's I think true. that's probably true. But, I, I mean, it certainly happened in Portland recently where somebody who was making an anti-woke argument uh, about uh, in opposition to the participation in the recent uprisings caused a lot of problems. And, I, I you know, a lot of the responses I felt like – so I, I felt like the, the, the initial argument was wrong-headed but included some valid points. And there was a total inability to even just have a conversation about the points being made because of just uh, just a, a total categorical uh, refusal to in- engage with a self-styled anti-woke left as though it were nothing but crypto-fascism that I think is actually really harmful to the left. Yeah, but that, to be fair, that guy's an asshole. <laughs> like, yeah, you know, I I, and also, yeah, he could be like, look, yeah. this guy's blue. Everybody would be like, fuck you. Like, you're an asshole. I don't, I, I don't, I just feel like that was really more the reaction. It's just the way that he did it. And so, yeah, of course, that's pernicious, too. I mean, I, I you know, but, 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 but to get to the core of the problem, which is, you know, uh, in my opinion, is that I, I, I don't think DSA doesn't have we don't do found we don't do readings on foundational texts. I'm not sure. I don't think DSA, ha- you know, or or the if you look at the history of, of democratic socialism, it's um, it's not revolutionary. So that is an I that DSA to the extent that it is the left is just the subject to kind of liberal, you know, falling back on liberal ideology as, as anybody else's. If you don't, if you're not reading, if you're not reading Cortex, like if you're not reading Lenin and you're not reading um, um, Marx and stuff like that. And I think there's a little bit too of, like I said, the Pacific Northwest and this, this really uh, uh, aggressive kind of uh, what, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, This refusal to, learn anything about the South and looking down on, on Southern whites and saying, you know, we're just not interested. 
uh, and it's a, it's an arrogance. It's an arrogance, uh, about how they view themselves. Probably, I would imagine seeing themselves as the good whites and, and just being, yeah. yeah, and, and just being completely dismissive of, of, of Southern history, which is how you understand race in this country, mm-hmm. you know? So it's, it's a lot of things going on there, but the core of it is that that guy's an asshole and he shouldn't have done it. And he shouldn't have done it that way, honestly. Yeah. And it, if anything, he's doing more harm. That's the yeah. thing because he's re-representing it as like, uh, I don't think, I, I don't think this will be shocked to anybody listening. He's an angry white guy, uh, is, is, <laughs> you know, really makes it worse. Yeah. I uh right. I went to grad school in DC for a while and I can tell you there the uh the view that people in the northeast have of southern whites is probably the same as you know the view that people in the northwest have of southern whites as uh, liberals in the northeast anyway um and I know the same thing exists uh in California where Jason is so it's like yeah, it's liberal liberals when people, yeah when I tell people I'm from Texas they're like oh well thank god you got out like as if Texas is no. just a giant racism factory, and <laughs> like we all work there. But I quit my job to come to the. I mean, that's really the way they, because I work in Hollywood, so that is literally the way they think. Like, I work in the anti-racism factory now, um, <laughs> and I will say this is not how you fight capitalism. So, just as much as I want to see the rational kernel in the like the 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 rejection of the over the overwokeness and the recognition that there is a way in which capital can utilize our desire for a more emancipated version of social life. There can be a woke capitalism. Um, I don't think that the way you fight capitalism in the period of, not, not that this is a legitimate periodization, I'm not saying like Fordism, neoliberalism, woke, right? But in in a moment in which there's such a thing that can be loosely understood as woke capitalism, I think it's just important to go on the record here and say the way to fight it is not to uh, adopt rightist uh, approaches to the questions that the woke people yeah. are trying to address. Yeah. yeah, just like the way to fight capitalism is not to make sure you do a land acknowledgement every time you have a meeting. I, I get it. I feel like it, it comes from a place that I think people want to be, which is a good place. But it's just, uh, yeah, like well, you know, Candy, you made the probably the, the good concluding point, which is like, I mean, if you want to, you want to really fight capitalism, go back to like. Let's figure out how to be Marxist. Let's figure out how to be like re- revolutionary and let's try to figure out in praxis, like in terms of actual engagement with the world, how to tear down both the woke and anti-woke capitalists because they still expropriate the surplus value we generate. That's the real problem. I'd like to buy the world a home and furnish it with love. Grow apple trees and honeybees I'd like to teach the world to 